Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. I think it's going to probably take a little bit more of a generational change to see whether any of the changes we've seen at the last election stick, whether people go back to a two-party system or whether they find that a group of independents and minor parties actually do progress their issues more. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Our lovely political editor, Catherine Murphy, is away on leave, but with me today in the pod cave, I'm joined by the rest of the Canberra team. Amy Ramakis. Josh Butler. And Daniel Hurst. Because we're packed to the rafters, you might have guessed by now, this is an Ask Us Anything episode of Australian Politics. We've had a good range of reader questions. Apologies if we don't get around to yours this week, but thank you to everyone that uh, emailed or tweet replied in. We might start with you, Amy. A big theme in the questions this week was uh, about Labor's uh, ambition in government or lack thereof. So there were lots of different variations and policy areas that people had this concern about. David Lindsay asks, uh, why do you think the Labor government isn't making more use of an opposition stuck in the political wilderness Uh, and gives examples like stage three tax cuts, inequality, housing crisis and climate policy? Miss Trudes asks, what's the rationale of a party with an increasing majority faced with a constituency who seem to be hungry for more equitable progressive policies seemingly dragging their feet? And finally, Linda Dollery asks, how can politicians in good conscience give the highest income earners millions of dollars in tax breaks, but we still know that so many people, including children, are living in poverty? So... Amy, why aren't Labor doing more? (laughs) Just an easy one to kick off, and I'll probably answer them all sort of together as that's probably easiest. I think the main question is why is Labor being surrender monkeys, really, when you would think that from the last election that they have as much political capital and space to do progressive policies as they would want, and the reason for that is that Labor has got an eye to the next election and are terrified that if they go too far to the left, or, you know, move away from this little centre area that they're currently occupying, that they will ruin their plans for successive election wins. That's pretty much it. Uh, And so they are keeping that small target strategy. Uh, And we've seen that pretty much uh, from all policy areas. The the things that they've gone out on the limb for, things like IR, but even then they're not going as far as perhaps you would expect a Labor government that's been out of government for 10 years to go. And they're doing it incrementally. So they're not having all of these major fights. Even their climate ambitions haven't been overly ambitious. And that's for the same reason. They don't want to scare middle Australia. So why are they not doing anything on the stage three tax cuts? Well, that's entirely political. They said they wouldn't do it and they weren't going to make any changes. And they're sticking to that, despite the fact that it's terrible for the country, terrible for the economy and terrible for uh, the increasing inequality 
inequality that we're seeing in this country. Whether or not the electorate eventually ends up forcing them to, because I think the lesson from the last election is that there is no such thing as a safe seat. Labor experienced that in Queensland too. They did get uh, hit by the green slide in Queensland with Terry Butler losing her seat. There is every chance that at the next election, Labor comes under the same sort of pressure as the Liberals did in those inner city seats Mm. for not going far enough uh, and not actually being ambitious and being bold in their policy. Uh, But that is, I think, a risk that they're willing to take for political reasons. If there is a noticeable shift within the electorate, I think that's when Labor will start creeping further to the left. Daniel or Josh, do you want to offer a view about whether you think this is uh, sensible to stay in the centre or whether you think this might backfire or comment on any particular policy area, stage three, tax cuts, inequality, housing or climate? Yeah, I think Amy sort of touched on, you know, hit the nail on the head right at the start there. I mean, Albanese's talked a couple of times about, you know, not just, you know, winning the last election, but winning the next one. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, stuff written in analysis and that sort of thing. Like, you know, Albanese was around and a key player in like the Rudd-Gillard years and they made some changes and, you know, very quickly Labor was sort of ushered out of government and the Tony Abbott era started and they sort of wound back a lot of the things that were accomplished in that period. I think Albanese wants to bed down this change and, you know, there's, I guess, a broader thing about, you know, trying to turn Labor into the natural party of government, which a lot of Liberals talk about, Liberal Party being natural party of government, um, having been in power for, I can't know off the top of my head, but, you know, for, for uh, I guess, a majority of the last, you know, couple of decades. Most of the post-war period Most, has there we go. been that, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a better metric to use, Amy. So I think it's, you know, as you say, this, this whole thing of safe change, slowly, slowly, like, you know, I think there's been talk that they would look to make a broader agenda of tax reform and those sort of things in a, in a, in a potential Albanese second term. Again, I think we'd have to wait and see if that actually is the the case or if that's just, I guess, something that people drop around in, in background chats with people to sort of get people off their back and why aren't you, you know, when, when journalists ask these sort of questions, like where is your broader reform package? But um, look, I think, you know, they are making changes, but it's a, a slower process as some people might want it to, to be at this stage. It's also a disgusting political truism that they don't believe that there is votes in poor people. Uh, And that is one of the reasons why the unemployment rate has not shifted in this country in decades, regardless of who has been in government, is because they just don't see it as a vote winner or a vote loser. Um, The the unemployment rate or the job uh, seeker rate? Sorry, the job seeker rate, the unemployment welfare rate. They don't see it as a vote winner or a vote loser. It's, It's neutral. So there's nothing to be gained and nothing to be lost. But then it completely undercuts what we hear from this government, particularly Jim Chalmers and his essay about doing capitalism differently. And, you know, running an economy with compassion when we are leaving so many people behind. I don't have much to add except that I think there is a lot of scar tissue from that Rudd-Gillard time combination of Albanese being paranoid about being accused of breaking promises and uh, not embedding a long-term government. And, you know, but at some point you (laughs) you get to the point where you you've actually got to stand for something as well. And so I think, I mean, watch the, I hate to say watch this space, but... Get over it, Labor. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, move forward. Yeah, yeah. You've got to stand for something as well. I might have a small note on Job Seeker at this point. So there was a lot of debate about the $40 a day rate. Labor in opposition promised to review it. Then the Morrison government in early 2021 increased it by $50 a fortnight 
that was after they were getting rid of the very generous coronavirus supplement. Well, they reached the poverty line, so it wasn't exactly like they were living large. And so they, they did this $50 a fortnight. Labor gave support for that, and that sort of eased the pressure off them to do this review and to and to do something about it. Uh, it's obviously come up again this week because the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee recommended to the government to have a substantial increase to JobSeeker to 90% of the age pension. A few people, have uh, readers, have asked questions about this, like why is Labor doing nothing? We should note that the government has suggested they're not going to enact that recommendation for a substantial increase. That doesn't mean there's not going to be anything for, for people currently receiving government payments. could be the parent payment, the child's age of eligibility could increase so that more parents are able to get that rather than being pushed on JobSeeker. It could be an improvement in rent assistance. It might be JobSeeker, but just a lot smaller, uh, an incremental improvement rather than... An insubstantial change. Uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a note of caution there that we're not sure what's in the budget yet. It was just a signal that they're not going to go as far as their their own um, poverty experts uh, suggested to them. Yeah, because why would we ever listen to the experts? Well, David Pocock, who who pushed for that committee to to be set up in the IR debate, maybe maybe wishing that he'd got a little bit more than a, a committee... Now. Yeah, and it's a barrier to entry to work. That's the other point that anyone who suggests that people on on this payment are, you know, quote unquote, you know, using the term that's used in tabloid media, doll bludgers, this payment is so low that it's a barrier to to finding work. So you know, that's just undercuts it. And the numbers of people on long term unemployment are people who are over the age of fifty five, particularly women, or have chronic health uh, issues, or have disabilities that are a barrier for them finding work. As we think about it, because it's not as if we got flexible workplaces, you know, suddenly after the pandemic either. So there are so many structural issues keeping people living. In poverty seems unconscionable when you consider how much of a mess the entire system is. On a similar theme, we had one question about why we don't see transformational uh, leadership and the questioner uh, gives Paul Keating as an example and thinks that government is now uh, too cautious and and process-driven. Daniel, do you have a view on uh, whether we've got a class of managers rather than leaders in government? I think there's structural reasons for it and it's, it's partly the media, it's partly the political class. If you look back to how (laughs) Paul Keating, you know, went on Talkback Radio in 1993, you know, after the Mabo decision and and Wick and sort of was talking about native title and would actually have a real back and forth with a member of the public who'd phoned up and said, I'm not racist, but, and he sort of said, well, they all say that, don't they? And then schooled him on dispossession of of Aboriginal lands. It's just hard to imagine that these days because uh, uh, leaders are trained by their political minders to be so uh, cautious. You would never tell a a person uh, of the you know a voter that you're wrong you would you would try to be polite and smile and explain something i think that time's gone i think that there's a lot more you know flourishing of online media um uh, and uh, incentives for news stories to be raced up for any you know if something is said that's not quite in the script or the talking points there is this sort of faster turnaround of of that being latched on so there's this aversion to going beyond the script and so it becomes more robotic as a, as a general principle. So I don't think we should divorce the media from, from, from that, but there's also the sort of speed with which things move and the continual campaign where the whole term of government is, is a continual campaign. Mm-hmm. It used to be this maxim around being able to do things and then the final year of a term was getting ready for the election. That's gone. 
those times are gone. Although Mark McGowan recently got caught going off script when on a hot mic moment, that didn't go so well for he, him. He went off script, but not in a surprising way, put it that way. Moving on from uh, uh, Keating uh, responding to the talkback caller on on Marbo and Wick, uh, we might now move on to The Voice. Uh, we had a few questions, um, one from Robert Bryan and a very similar question from Matt from Goldie, who wanted to know the Indigenous voice to Parliament and to the executive. How do we define uh, the executive uh, of the federal government uh, in Australia? And why do opponents or, you know, some in favour who are just constitutional conservatives, why do they see a voice to the executive as maybe a step too far, Josh? Um, So I took down a couple of notes on this one, so I'll sort of read them out a little bit. I mean, broadly, when we talk about the executive in, in this context, we're talking of the executive government, it sort of captures the cabinet, so the senior ministers in the government, and the public service as well, which is like the administrative, I guess, decision-making arm of, of what we've seen as a government. Um, the, the issue that has been raised, and I guess it's by a smaller number of conservative critics, and it's been deemed, you know, quote, fanciful and hypothetical by some major experts in this area, and I'll come to that in a minute. But the critics or the, the critiques of it are that the ability of the voice to advise the executive government, putting that in the constitution would sort of create uh, an obligation for the voice to be consulted on those decisions that are made. Um, and, and you know, again, this is, stressing this is the, the, the claim put before by a small number of people and it's been refu- you know, rebutted and refuted. But the, the, the claim would be that unless the voice would be consulted um, or given a chance to, you know, give advice on these things, either it could be taken to court, the decision could be, you know, disputed in court or the executive would have to inform the voice of all these, you know, many thousands of decisions that are made every year by public servants and that sort of thing. Either way, it would, you know, slow decision-making processes down. Now, this was a topic that was canvassed pretty strongly in the referendum inquiry last week. Uh, A number of Australia's major constitutional experts, and we're talking, you know, academics, including Anne Toomey and uh, George Williams and um, Brett Walker, the esteemed um, high court uh, barrister, basically, rebuff these suggestions. Um, Brett Walker, I'm quoting here, Brett Walker called, you know, that criticism a, a bizarre suggestion. I don't think there's any prospect of that. It's nonsense. Going back to the the, the, the part of the question about what does the executive include, Anne Toomey was talking about here um, in, in a lot of these cases, the, the High Court has said that executive government means ministers and government departments, but doesn't include statutory bodies that have separate legal personalities. So she was saying it doesn't go quite as far as others might have been suggesting that it wouldn't include the scope or the the number of people involved that some of the critics say. George Williams was talking about hypotheticals and fanciful suggestions um, and claimed there is no realistic possibility whatsoever this will give rise to a deluge of litigation. The words don't support it. Um, Noel Pearson said the same thing a little earlier, talking about advising um, the executive and public servants was actually not just like a sideline issue and something that we could just sort of hive off and get rid of to get you know conservative support. He said it was the most important thing because arguably it's the public service decision makers that need the advice the most and are the ones who might not be getting um, the outcomes that we need. So it's it's input into a lot of different areas in government, but the word change doesn't guarantee 
that um, that they get that input before any decision can be made. Well, this is this is that is, a basic summary? Uh, that, of it? That's a very good summary of it, and, and that's that's not my summary because I'm not a lawyer. Um, that's the summary again of, of Anne Toomey and and Brett Walker and, and George Williams and all these people saying, you know, I guess the the, the criticism or the claim again, this is been in a hypothetical claim by a lot of these people is saying that, you know, if, if there is a, an ability or a power for the voice to consult, there is, I guess, a, a resulting obligation that, that the voice be consulted. But that is not what supporters say. It's, you know, the voice can make represent, representations, right. is the word, mm. um, on, on things that they want to make representations on, but there is no obligation for the, you know, public service to tell the voice every single thing they're planning to do. Oh, we're going to, we're going to, we're thinking about, you know, starting this new program, we're thinking about this, we're thinking about that, like the voice can give input on things that it decides to. Hmm. A related uh, question uh, we from Lynn Young asks, uh, relating to Julian Lisa uh, quitting as Shadow Attorney General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians. If someone gives up a Shadow Ministry, do they earn less money? Well, yes. So, so there, there's a uh, backbencher salary that basically every politician gets, which um, I just looked it up. It is it was raised to $217,000 last year. So um, if depending on what position you hold in the parliament, whether you're the, you know, the prime minister or a minister or whatever, it cascades down, you get a, 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 an a additional salary on top of that. So I think the prime minister gets um, the base salary plus 160%. So you can do the maths in your head. Deputy prime minister gets, I think, 105% extra on top. A shadow minister gets either 20 or 25% if you correspond to a minister in cabinet, which is what Julian Lisa would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, that came out to, I did the maths here, um, came out to about another $54,000 would 25% um, on top of $217,000 be. So um, giving up your shadow ministry position would equal about that much. I guess it's about a bit more than money though. Like, I mean, you know, obviously your, your, your you know, weekly paycheck comes out a little bit less each, each month, but um, uh, this is a big deal for someone to do this. I, I, I'm not sure. I haven't been around in parliament as long as you guys have, but like, I can't remember the last time someone resigned on on principle like this. And it is a, a career progression issue as well. I mean, if and when the Liberals get back into government, it wouldn't be very easy for Julian Lisa to slip back into um, the shadow, you know, the AG position or the Indigenous Australians Minister position. Well, it would depend on who was leader. Oh, exactly. <laughs> we'll get on to that later. But Unless you're, you're right. right. <laughs> it could improve his job prospects with a different leader. Prime Minister Julian Lisa, you never know. You mm. do also lose your staffing cohort um, when you move away from the shadow minister ministry as well, because uh, basically you don't get to keep all of the staff if you move into a backbencher position because there's not uh, just a open-ended staffing position for anyone in government or opposition. So that's another thing. It's, it's a lot more work for the people left in the office. We had uh, a question about housing from Ross Martin, which I might take, uh, asking, are we short of houses because we just have an extraordinary population uh, and uh, growth in work visas? Um, I mean, I guess uh, the point I would make here is that there is a certain amount of stock of housing, of existing housing, and it's uh, the amount that's built every year is, you know, quite small in comparison to that uh, that existing stock. Uh, we can tell from extremely uh, long run over decades of price increases that we have, um, you know, a, a problem of, of more demand than supply. Um, there are some particular factors causing problems at the moment. There was, you know, interruption to construction um, and supply of labour and materials during COVID. And then suddenly when borders uh, were reopened, we have had, uh, you know, 650,000 arrivals. Uh, so that can be part of uh, the issue, although obviously we're not blaming those people because they're doing things like reuniting with their families 
family or they're on skilled work visas and they are contributing. So, you know, no one's begrudging anyone for, for needing somewhere to stay. It's just a, a, a structural problem of high rents that we've got at the moment that has to be addressed in some way. I mean, I, I guess the problem that we've got here is that a lot of the levers are in the state's hands about uh, releasing land. The federal government its main levers are about tax, about capital gains, tax and negative gearing. Labor tried that from opposition going into the 2019 election and lost that election so that there aren't a lot of levers they can pull. They are trying to build a $10 billion future fund that can pay up to $500 million a year to construct housing. But it's all it's all sort of a drop in the ocean when you consider that you'd need to be building more houses than there are people needing housing every year for many years in order to make a difference to the to the stock. Yeah, it's the manifestation of decades of neoliberal policies, you know, letting the market decide, protecting individual wealth. Now we have a generation of people who are locked out of the housing market and the solution to that seems to be, well, just wait until the inheritances come through. Like that's literally what seems to be the answer when you talk to people go, what should I do? To save up for a housing deposit at the moment, so take Canberra, uh, you would need about $260,000 for the average home in Canberra. That leaves you with nothing for when, you know, interest rates increase or something like that, if you've managed to save that much for a deposit. And you're also not buying, like, you know, a palace. You're buying, an, you know, an ex-government home on the outskirts. And that is what we are telling people to do. You're not allowed to live where you grew up. You're not allowed to live near where your parents are. You have to move further and further out, but you're going to pay a million dollars for the privilege. You know, it's also a problem with rental stock, with with all of that. And so until there actually is some sort of, I don't know, national cabinet get together about how we work out what we're doing with the housing market, 30,000 homes over five years is not going to do anything to fix this. Uh, Peter Peter Werfel asks, uh, I'm wondering what Sky News audience share is compared to other outlets and how influential it is, uh, especially if third-party news organisations uh, didn't relay the Sky News position. Daniel, do you want to take this one? Sure. So um, uh, I'm going to go through a few numbers, but with some caveats. I'll get to the caveats shortly. But like Sky News, uh, the actual people, the number of people viewing the subscription TV channel live uh, doesn't appear that large, but there are other ways that people consume that, and I'll get to that. But uh, on Wednesday night this week, for example, the top-rating Sky News program was The Bolt Report, and that got 48,000 people nationwide on the Sky News channel, which uh, was uh, compared to the number one rating show on uh, uh, subscription TV that same night was Gogglebox with 88,000, so more than, more than The Bolt Report. Um, and that same night, um, the ABC News Bulletin uh, had 556,000 viewers in the five biggest metropolitan cities. But Sky has connections with regional networks and there's a lot of people viewing it now through um, regional TV. Um, uh, and so that's not captured in that uh, smaller number that I gave. And where Sky News really comes into its own is uh, on uh digital media, uh, people not necessarily viewing it live, but on YouTube. So Sky News itself says that it gets 30 million unique 
monthly watch views on its um, Sky News Australia YouTube channel. Now, only 6.6 million of those are Australian, so it's got a huge, so it's sort of, particularly in the US, it's got a huge, you know, it, it, it feeds into that ecosystem. But it has a lot of people watching content uh, through YouTube and on their website, and it's shared very rapidly on social media. And so Sky News says that its YouTube channel has twice uh, twice the uh, numbers as ABC News's YouTube channel. So, you know, there's there's that. Uh, and then there's also the, just the sheer influence from uh, the fact that in most political offices uh, and also in media offices, uh, throughout the day, ABC News channel and the Sky News channel would both be on. And it sort of helps set the agenda and, and, and it sort of feeds in in a sort of, you know, subliminal way into how um, the, the, the media cycle plays out. And then particularly in the Liberal Party base, there seems to be this playing up for that audience as well. So so of those, what was it, 40,000 people watching a Bolt report? Maybe like a 1,000 of them are probably in Parliament House right now. Like, <laughs> with, the, the with, the, with, the, with the TV on mute in the corner probably. <laughs> I mean, like the, the, the question also went to, you know, how influential is it, especially if the party news didn't relay this guy in his position? I mean, I guess there's the two parts. There's the, the day and the night. Like it's sort of like the, the werewolf. Like it's, you know, in, the, in the, the daytime, it's like a relatively middle-of-the-road sort of news organisation that has, I think, you know, pretty middle-of-the-road, you know, in, in like editorial terms, um, journalists and hosts and that sort of thing who break big stories and they do good interviews with people that sort of set the agenda. Like, you know, we sit there all day and flick on Sky when, you know, someone that we're trying to hear from is having an interview or the minister of the day is up and saying their lines and that sort of thing. But, you know, obviously the, the nighttime is, is 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 different. And I think that might be, might be sort of more where this person, the question might be coming from in terms of influence and that sort of thing. I think the foxification of mm. Sky News Australia has been fairly evident over the last couple of years mm. where it is increasingly blurred, where during their election coverage, for instance, you have like the you know the journalists who do stick to a fairly centre editorial line, and then you have the you know the grifftertainers who are on the same panel you know giving their two cents. They're doing the big political interviews now too. Like you know it, there is a big blurring. And when we talk about influence, um, I I've spoken to numerous you know, former Liberal MPs who have said one of the reasons why it all became too hard is because they would go to branch meetings and try to talk about policies or things that were happening and they would be hammered with questions about what Peter Credlin or Andrew Bolt or Chris Kenny had, what you know, Paul Murray had a bee in their bonnet about that week and what are you doing about this? And it was never an issue that actually was relating to what most Australians were caring about about. It was very much an echo chamber issue, but it's what the branches were then listening to, which was then hammering the MPs. And then you become like this little echo chamber where you're trying to address issues that branches have raised because of what has been raised on Sky After Dark. And, and you know, to go to the question of influence, I mean, maybe the, the actual size of the audience isn't that high, but I would say that the people that do watch it are probably highly activated, highly engaged, like you say, branch members or journalists or other politicians and that sort of thing. Like I remember when I first started coming to Parliament, I haven't heard this term in a while, but people used to talk, to, talk about Sky News as the internal messaging service. Like of, you know, when, when this, this was you know, a number of years ago when it was when it, um, coalition government, but it would be, you know, when someone was like positioning for a leadership change or positioning to, you know, get a promotion or whatever it was, like they would spend a lot of time on Sky News because they knew that everyone in the building was watching it. 
We had a few questions about power sharing and the Greens. David Lindsay asks, uh, with Labor drifting more to the right and the Coalition Party slowly fracturing, do you think we'll ever see a Greens government in the future or a multi-party government that are in Europe more common uh, likely to come up in Australia? Uh, and Lisa Johnson asks, it feels like the LNP is in self-destruct mode. Is the future opposition the Greens? Amy, do you have views on those? Well, I think whenever we talk about, you know, does Australia have a future of having coalitions or a bunch of independents, we need to go back to before World War II when that was basically the norm for the Australian Parliament. Australia's federation was built on a bunch of different independents and political parties joining together. On the non-Labor side. Yeah, on the non-Labor side, but sometimes on the Labor side as well. And then it only really became a two-party system, inverted commas, after World War II. And that's basically what we've gotten used to. But that doesn't mean that we haven't had parliaments run by different coalitions and that, you know, they haven't managed to pass policies and all the rest of it. I think it's going to probably take a little bit more of a generational change to see whether any of the changes we've seen at the last election stick, whether people go back to a two-party system or whether they find that a group of independents and minor parties actually do progress their issues more. Uh, and we were often asked, like, you know, is the, is the coalition putting itself into irrelevancy? Well, when you look at the seats they're holding, I think it's about 17 of the 80 or so inner metro seats at the moment. They really have become a party of the rural and regional and outer metropolitan areas, which they don't hold naturally either. There's still a lot of areas that are contested uh, in those seats. It's probably going to take a little bit more of a shift, like, you know, are they going to react to these changes? Are they going to react to what the electorate wants? Or are they going to continue down this hard right line, which is a shrinking voter base? So there's a bunch of unanswered questions that we can't actually go, this is what's going to happen, because it's really going to depend on what the Australian people want over the next decade or so. I think that answer uh, uh, touches also on a question that Alan Crow asked about whether the coalition is facing a normal cyclical issue that occurs uh, when you move into opposition uh, or uh, whether they've got more structural uh, issues uh, that, that's going to you know, prevent them getting back into government. Uh, Josh and Daniel, do you have views on that? Uh, yeah, the, the, the you know, cyclical issues, I mean, I think it's, we've still got to remember it's only less than a year since the, the last election. I think there could be you know, two years potentially until the next one. I, I don't think there's many people who would be putting money on a you know, first term um, uh, Albanese government to get booted out of the next election. Um, I, I do think there's probably still a lot of time before the Liberal Party would ever get back into government. I think when was the last time there was a, a you know government in Australia that get kicked out after one term? There wouldn't wouldn't be many. Um, yeah, came close. With almost, some yeah, almost there. Yeah, yeah, that, right. that yeah. Um, that's uh, well. There's no right in the government at the moment, so we'll um, we'll see if one emerges. But um, will the will the will the Liberal Party bounce back after the government tires? We've talked about this a few times, I think, on on the podcast, haven't we? About like what what is the Liberal Party you know, coalition path back to government? Like they're at fifty something seats, sixty something seats. Like there's, they've got to win what say fifteen twenty seats to get back into government. Like where are those? Which seats are they? I mean, you know, you could say that, you know, Peter Dutton's, you know, having a great, you know, time as opposition leader and he's, you know, really hitting them on the issues and that sort of thing, like if you wanted to say that. But, like, where are the 15, 20 seats they're going to win to get back into government? And he's not he's not winning over the – he's not appealing to the teal seats or the green seats that, you know, there's that buffer there. 
Which is structurally difficult for them. Yeah, Cos Samaras, who has done polling and things on this, he did a tweet recently where he has looked at the Liberal primary vote in 2010, 38, in 2014, 36, in 2018, 30, in 2022, 29.7. So it has been dropping as the generational shift in terms of younger voters have moved forward. Also, I mean, we can't forget the impact of particularly women over the age of 55. Because why? Well, they have lost out in terms of wealth building in this country in the same way that millennial and and Gen Zs have. Uh, They're the fastest growing cohort of homelessness in this country. If they lose their job, they are more likely to be unemployed for more than five years. And that means it's going to be almost impossible to come back into the workforce. And because of that, they are starting to look at policies for who may help them. I'm not sure the Liberal Party over the last decade or so has offered policies that help people who don't already have wealth. Mm. And I'm not sure whether they have offered any options in opposition or shown any direction that that is where they're they're going. They seem to be doubling down on all of those existing policies. Uh, And so whether it's like it is a cycle or not, it would the primary vote would show that it's dropping. Yes, Labor's is too, but it matters more for the Liberal Party. Yeah, fortnight ago we had uh, James Patterson on Australian politics and he sort of made the point that it's both at the same time. It's structural and cyclical mm. uh, factors, particularly in Victoria, uh, biting them at the same time. And so while I think there's uh, some truth to uh, what Peter Dutton said in a speech this week that, you know, we'll be back basically, like oppositions always, you know, seem at their lowest just as they've lost government, but they always come back. There's some truth to that, but there are also factors that are different this time than mm. 2007 when, when Rudd beat Howard. Like when Rudd beat Howard, you didn't have this huge crossbench of, uh, of, of teal independents that had taken traditionally liberal seats. So I think it's a different challenge they face this time. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, to that, what they turn the wheel always turns. I mean, it, it, it'll, it'll come back. I think, you know, I think people would be surprised if maybe the Liberal Party didn't win back a couple of seats in the next election. But um, I, I just don't know where those seats are. Mm, not could, for the majority. Could, well, this not is a majority, this is, not like, next like, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe not next time. I mean, like, you know, Aston, like, we look at the, and it's one example, but, you know, that, that was one of the seats that Peter Dutton has sort of pitched as, you know, I'm going to win the mortgage belt and, the, you know, the battle is back. And didn't win it, lost it. And where do they go from here? All right, we might do the last two questions uh, together. Uh, James Robertson asks, what is a policy idea Dutton could feasibly stake his leadership on instead of a vote no in the voice campaign? And Crude Bong asks, who will be the inevitable next leader of the opposition that will take on the current government at the next election? So obviously not very rosy on Peter Dutton's prospects. Uh, Daniel, how about we start with you? I think... (laughs) <laughs> this is not a, is not an endorsement, but I think Angus Taylor uh, or Andrew Hasty might be uh, ones who have tickets on themselves to do that. What? <laughs> yeah, and staking leadership. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he could stake it on actually being constructive on climate change, but that seems to be a bridge too far. Josh, it's all just cost of living, isn't it? I mean, like, there's like that's the most bonehead answer that we can give, but like, it's the most obvious one for a reason. I mean, the, even in the last couple of days, you know, um, Karen Andrews, um, after she quit the front bench, um, gave an interview. I think it was with the Sydney Morning Herald to say, sort of, you know, the, the coalition should maybe spend a bit less time talking about the voice, a bit more time talking about cost of living because it's the only issue that people really care about. Um, I, I think she's, I think she's right there, and I, and I don't think it's so much about like talking about the voice less because I think this. Um, 
um, the reshuffle shows that the coalition is going to, you know, actively campaign very hard. No, on this is not just going to be Peter Dutton, who's already well well ahead flagged that he would um, actively campaign. No, they put just in a price into the shadow Indigenous role, so they're going to keep, you know, taking on that that mantle. Um, but cost of living is the only thing, isn't it? I think you know, Liberals talking in in, in the background. You know, they look at the next, say, two years from now, one and a half years from now, when the next election might be. You know, if Australia hits some really tough times with inflation, or you know, the world goes to crap with everything that's happening in all these global factors, like they see like a small, slim pathway that people finally, at, at this point, people aren't blaming the government for interest rate rises and for cost of living issues massively. But the question I think sort of means who will be the next leader. But I, th- I still think it's Peter Dutton. I, I can't see Peter Dutton not being the leader at the next election. Amy? Yeah, I, I think uh, the end of the year is probably the deadline for Peter Dutton's leadership. And I would be surprised if he was leader for much beyond that. So, I mean, if he's listening here, I think he already, you know, hates us. So I'm not sure that's actually going to have any impact. Uh, but I, I agree. Cost of living is one thing that they could actually stake leadership in, but not just saying, hey, cost of living is bad and you should blame the Labor government. Coming up with policies for it. So, hey, maybe just going, we've looked at it and scrapping stage three tax cuts is something that a responsible government should do. You know, get on like the top of the wave of these things that inevitably are going to become what the national conversation is about, but make it look like it was your idea. I mean, I don't want to give away ideas for free. I know they pay a lot of money to political consultants for this, but I don't know, maybe just coming up with solutions that the people who are suffering really want and are already screaming for, that seems pretty simple. And if Dutton stumbles, who next? Oh, God. Angus Taylor, Andrew Hastie is definitely in the next generation, Paul Fletcher. Somebody said Dan Tian to me the other day, and when I stopped laughing, um, then I said that's probably unlikely. So, And Susan Lay, of course, is still going to be in the running for it, but uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's. There's no clear, clear person at the moment, which I think is one of the Liberal Party's biggest issues. I, I think the, the the real politic of this as well, like the referendum, not, not to just come back to the referendum because I'm writing about the referendum all the time, but like I, I think if the referendum does pass and Peter Dutton has sort of staked the, the Liberal Party sort of future on opposing the referendum and it, and it does pass by even by a small majority, I think that shows the Liberal Party and, you know, the Liberal Party overwhelmingly backed the position in the party room, but Peter Dutton was the one who brought that forward. So I think there would be some massive questions about his uh, judgment and that sort of thing in the party room if the um, uh, if they if they voted no and, and the referendum got up so I think that is a factor that you know if we, if we think about like what's a what's a trigger factor for a, a spill or someone sending down I think that could that's one to think of. not not that the whole referendum should just be um, looked at in terms of Labor versus Liberal or Albanese versus Dutton and that sort of thing but I think that is a, a, an unavoidable factor that you have to think about through the referendum as well yeah, and I think we could get a, a Cook by-election even before then as another... Uh, I don't think Labor's a chance... A snowball's as well. Um, I don't think Labor's a snowball's chance in hell of winning, uh, you know, the, the, the Sutherland Shire over, but, like, a, a swing against the opposition again would be uh, disastrous. In terms of a policy idea... I'm going to say uh, housing because in the first budget reply, Peter Dutton recommitted to the election policy of um, super withdrawals uh, to pay for for, for housing. So that's clearly a topic of interest and calling around to MPs after the uh, disastrous Aston by-election defeat, the one policy area that they all said that they needed a a, a substantive offering on uh, to try and boost their vote, especially under 40s, was 
a bigger housing policy. Um, you know, some of the more wet liberals also wanted emissions reduction policy, but everyone mentioned housing. So I think I think that's what they're going to go for. I think that might be all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for your questions and for uh, listening. Uh, this episode was produced by Miles Herbert. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'll be back with another episode of Australian Politics next week. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.